Hello and welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan, and in this program, we all discover jazz, old and new, together by listening to a wide array of selections, exploring different jazz styles and topics related to jazz, we'll learn more about what it is, what it isn't, how it's developed, and what we can listen for to enhance our experience. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. Today, special guest, Thelonious Monk fanatic, Michael Morse. Listening to Thelonious Monk's playful rendition of T for Two, recommended by today's guest, Michael Morse, a jazz bassist and ethnomusicologist. Playing with Monk in this recording is Art Blakey on drums and Oscar Pettiford on bass from 1956. Starting today with a part of my interview with Michael that particularly inspired me hearkening back to my childhood when I took piano lessons and was chastised for not curving my fingers. So, hearing what Michael Morse says here about Thelonious Monk feels rather but, validating. Um, Monk found him, decided that he was getting lost on the shuffle by 1945-46 uh, and changed his own approach to the instrument. Uh, he had, in fact, been classically trained, which is to say uh, the the way you approach the instrument is in a kind of a curve that starts at your shoulders and goes all the way down to curved hands and then your fingers are pointing down and onto the piano. Um, and that's, that's good posture, it's, it's good for you physically, it's good for the sound you get out of the instrument, it makes playing the instrument much easier. Monk decided that he wanted a different kind of technique, uh, and as you can see from the many videos of Monk playing, he started to hold his fingers flat. Um, and and remarkably, I mean, he uses his his fingers like ten tuned drumsticks. He still plays very very fluently, very fleetly, but his technique is, com- in that sense, completely unorthodox. It's uh, it's a, a completely self built technique. I mean, to this day, there are people that admire Monk as a composer, but think he, think his piano playing is interesting, but he has bad technique. Uh, in fact, that's only one definition of technique. Um, if 
if you think of technique as being the means to do what you're trying to do, uh, the, the means to say what you're trying to say, and the approach to the instrument or to the voice that is appropriate for what you're talking about, then Monk's technique is tremendous. You couldn't play what Monk plays with, with the technique that he himself used to have in the early 40s, or that Oscar Peterson has, or that Bill Evans has. That technique wouldn't work for that. So, I mean, to, to say that Monk's technique is bad is a, is a tendentious use of the word technique. He has great technique for what he's doing. Uh, the more familiar example is, uh, you know, blues greats like Lightning Light, uh, Hopkins or, or, or Lead Belly. They don't have the technique that, that, that Segovia does, but with Segovia's technique, you couldn't play what Lightning Hopkins plays or what uh, Mississippi John Hart plays, and vice versa. Now, if only I had known this at the time, my piano teacher would keep yelling at me to curve my fingers. I could have played her some Thelonious Monk telling her, hey, this is my technique. Let's hear more from Michael Morse, how he became both a jazz and a monk fanatic. Well, I got, got interested in jazz in part through my father, who uh, who was more interested in traditional jazz. He was a scientist by profession. But um, um, then I, I got to know somebody in junior high school who was who was connected to the modern jazz world and got involved in that about uh, uh, grade eight, I guess it would have been. And the first record I bought on my own was a Dave Brubeck record. And the second one, for reasons that I don't remember, was Thelonious Monk with John Coltrane. And like a lot of people at the time, this would be the late 50s, early 60s, I was very puzzled by what I heard. One of the tunes on it was called Nutty, and I remember thinking, they're all nutty. <laughs> but then the more I listened to it, the more the more I realized what Monk was doing. I mean, Monk, Monk can still be, in, in his more challenging tunes, I mean, he's, there's a real range uh, in the 80 or 90 songs that he wrote, um, some of them are very simple and very childlike. Indeed, he wrote songs for his children that are um, have, have the idiom of children. And, and Monk is famous for speaking to children. Children like Monk in a way that they might not like Charlie Parker or Dave Brubeck or Duke Ellington. Interestingly, Monk also played a role in my own introduction to jazz. 
I was 14, and I won an album on CJCA Top 93 Radio in Edmonton by identifying my favorite pop singer at the time, a man named Gene McDaniels, who has since, or who had since gone on to play a lot of jazz. But this particular album was called The Wonderful World of Gene McDaniels, and much of it was jazz arrangements of standards. And there was one Thelonious Monk tune to which Gene McDaniels wrote lyrics and did scat singing, and I fell in love with it. Now, knowing every note by memory, here is that song right from the same album, a two-and-a-half-minute version of Thelonious Monk's Straight No Chaser, Gene McDaniels and the Marty Page Orchestra. I went to a bar, I didn't have to go far. I had to get high, I didn't know why. I thought a bit, and just as sure as can be. It came back to me, complete misery, make it straight. No chaser, please, bartender, won't you tell me when it's two o'clock, please? Bartender turned round, said, mister, look what I found. I found some good wine, so that would be fine. I thought a bit, that isn't just what I need. Get loaded with speed, said, won't you take heat? Straight scotch, no chaser, please, bartender, won't you tell me when it's two o'clock, please? sure as can be. It came back to me, complete misery, make it straight, no chaser, please, bartender, won't you tell me when it's two o'clock, please? Bartender turned round, said, mister, look what I found, I found some good wine, said that would be fine, I thought a bit, that isn't just what I need. Get loaded with speed, said, won't you take heat, straight scotch, no chaser, please, bartender, won't you tell me when it's two o'clock, please? Let's hear more from Michael Morse as we chat at his kitchen table in Peterborough, Ontario. Now, Monk, as a composer, um, about? I, once again, I think he combines um, a, a logic that's, that's, ironically, in some ways closer to classical composers uh, than some other jazz uh, jazz composers. Or maybe we could contrast him with uh, Count, the Count Basie uh, folks, uh, like Basie himself and Lester Young, for whom uh, a song is really just a riff. It's a very, very simple figure. Uh, that fits a progression like the blues, uh, and it really is just a, a setup for the improvisations. Monk's, um, Monk's logic is a much more intricate logic, uh, and again, it harks back at least a little bit to uh, the, the classical ideals of a Beethoven or Brahms. Uh, in particular, Monk's 
music is often built out of very small ideas, just a couple of notes, or in an extreme case, uh, the wonderful song Evidence, which we're going to play at our November 4th concert, um, the, the, the working material is just single notes placed in the bar in a particular way and with a particular kind of rhythmic emphasis. Um, but, but when it's a couple of notes, what Monk will typically do is to, is to create different kinds of shadings of, the, of those, uh, those notes, put them in different kinds of light harmonically by playing some in different parts of the bar and different parts of the chord progression. But then what he will do is, is uh, very often is the, the very last phrase of the initial section becomes the first phrase of the second section. So what you end up getting within the space of, uh, uh, of 32 bars, or sometimes even 12 bars if he's doing the blues, is something very much like what classical composers call development. You have an idea that, that isn't just presented and then ignored or, or passed over in favor of improvisation, in favor of new ideas, but, but it's developed and, gives, and opens new possibilities for ideas. Uh, and Monk too, uh, as a composer, um, composer, band leader, pianist, ins uh, insisted to these people, he would, he would always tell his tenor players like Johnny Griffin and John Colchin and Charlie Rouse, don't throw the melody away once you're once you're uh, once you're finished playing the melody, it should still be a part of what you continue to do. And this was very different from what Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker did. Um, if you came in in the middle of a performance of Gillespie and Parker, you could tell from the progression what the song was, but what the melody was, you couldn't tell whether it was an original melody by Parker or Gillespie or somebody else, or whether it was the actual Broadway tune that they used, where there was no way to tell. Whereas Monk, yeah, I mean, you would always hear you would always hear references and shadings, and again, developments, rethinkings, uh, reconsiderations of the melody. Okay, so we're going to be playing the tune Evidence, mm -hmm. uh, and that's with Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane. Right. Is that is that from that album that you first heard? That, uh... Uh, this this is this particular performance is from something that was only issued in the last ten or twenty years. There, there, the partnership of John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk was historically tremendously important. It got it helped John Coltrane get his personal and musical life together uh, after a kind of a debacle with Miles Davis and drugs. Uh, he got fired from Miles' band and was in kind of a bad shape. And Monk helped him get himself back together and really develop his music uh, at a high level. But the band only recorded a few numbers in the studio. Uh, and it was only in the 90s that we found out that there was in fact a, uh, a bootleg home tape recorder that someone brought to the five spot in the 1950s and then later that someone had recorded a concert at Carnegie Hall. If I remember this evidence is from the uh, the Carnegie Hall concert. It's a great demonstration of Monk's composing, band leading, uh, piano playing abilities. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece. This was an adaptation of another song, right? right? Another tune that Monk had also recorded. Um, Yet another dimension of Monk, the, uh, uh, the pianist musical thinker, uh, composer, arranger, band leader, is what he would do with standard popular songs. Uh, it, it had been a thing ever since the 1920s, ever since Louis Armstrong, for the working material of jazz musicians to consist uh, basically of some kind of balance between the blues, uh, their own compositions, fairly rarely completely originally composed, that is to say, original melody, original uh, chord progression, original everything. And then, then the next balance was... Um, popular songs of the day, which would come from the radio. Broadway was a particularly big source. Uh, and the bebop musicians in particular, such as Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, and very much Thelonious Monk, would play uh, songs from Broadway uh, by the master composers, such as Kern and Gershwin uh, and Cole Porter. They would often play with the melodies that those composers, songwriters wrote, but they would also uh, take the basic patterns of those songs and recompose their own melodies. 
Evidence is a recomposition of a popular song. I don't think it's from a show, if I remember, but it's a song called Just You, Just Me. It was a uh, radio hit in the 30s. And there's several kind of phases of what Monk did with it. Um, his performance of Just You, Just Me isn't just performing the song in his own style. He basically recomposes it. The melody is very recognizable, but Monk adds a kind of reply voice in the left hand. His his left hand and the bass play a composed line that, that, are, that is part of the arrangement that Monk plays. So at least partially, uh, he directly turns it into not just an arrangement, but a composition of his own. Right. Now, is that in his version of Just You, Just Me, or is that in his version of Evidence that you're talking about? Evidence, evidence he starts over and just creates his own melody. There, there's no particular bass line for Evidence other than, than, than the regular walking bass accompaniment. But when he plays Just You, Just Me, it has that, that, uh, that, that unique bass line of his own, own creation. Uh, in the arrangement that we're going to play in the November 4th concert, um, Given the uh, contemporary fashion for mashups, I, I brought the two together. They're, they're, you can hear evidence in it. You can hear just you, just me, and you can hear Monk's own version of it. And you can hear them also run together. Michael, we'll talk more about this Thelonious Monk concert he's putting on November 4th. But right now, let's play those two tunes he's talking about. Just you, just me, and evidence. I'll start with just a bit of the Nat King Cole version of Just You, Just Me, a fairly straightforward jazz adaptation of that 1930s tune. Then I'll play some of Thelonious Monk and what he did to that tune, and you can pay attention to the bass line that Michael Morse is talking about. Then I'll play some of that new composition that Monk created called Evidence, the one he plays with John Coltrane. Here goes. Just you, just me. Let's find a cozy spot to cuddle and woo. Just us, just we. I've missed an awful lot. My trouble is you. Oh, gee, what are your charms for? What are my arms for? Use your imagination. Just see you. Just me, our tile lovers, not around wonderful you. Now for the Thelonious Monk rendition of Just You, Just Me.
Here's the new tune that Monk crafted from that last one, Evidence with John Coltrane on tenor sax. Thelonious Monk from a 1956 recording made live at Carnegie Hall with John Coltrane on tenor sax, Ahmed Abdul Malik on bass, and Shadow Wilson on drums. I certainly can't let that tune go by without telling the well-known story of how Monk named that song. His titles were often just as interesting to figure out as what he was doing musically. That one, called Evidence, is, as I mentioned, his adaptation of that other tune, Just You, Just Me, which we heard some excerpts from. So, why evidence? Well, what is you and me? That's us, right? So just you and me becomes just us. What do you need to have justice? Well, you need evidence. Pretty clever, eh? Let's hear some more from Michael Morrison about this concert that he's putting on this week. Yes, on November 4th at Sadler House, uh, we're paying we're paying 100th birthday tribute to Thelonious Monk. The title of the show is 100 Years of Thelonious Monk. It's in the dining hall at Sadler House on November 4th at 8 o'clock. And a number of musicians who have been uh, 
<laughs> I was going to say impressed by, wowed by, uh, overwhelmed by Thelonious Monk are going to be playing, including uh, our sponsors, uh, the, some members of the uh, Trent University Music Society. The Trent University Jazz Band is going to play a couple of numbers, uh, including Blue Monk by Thelonious Monk. Uh, then uh, my own ensemble called the Dignity of Labor Ensemble, uh, is, or the New Dignity of Labor Ensemble, uh, is going to be, be playing some monk tunes. The distinctive thing about this group, I mean, particularly unusual, I suppose, for tribute to a pianist, is that there's no piano in that group. Uh, the arrangements are for two woodwinds, two brass, violin, bass, and drums. Uh, and that was a, a configuration that I got fascinated with a number of years ago. Uh, and I've been able to assemble a number of top-flight uh, Peterborough musicians who are going to be playing as the Dignity of Labor Ensemble. And we're going to be playing a number of Monk's tunes. Um, this combination arrangement that I mentioned of Just You, Just Me and Evidence is also going to be part of it. An original composition of mine in tribute to Thelonious Monk will be part of the proceedings. Uh, and finally, a, an original poem created especially for the concert by my friend and partner Ian McLaughlin, with whom I've written an opera and whom I've done many uh, jazz and poetry recitals and combinations. Uh, he will be playing uh, a piece he calls Round Midnight uh, at the Hilton. Uh, and it's... Um, poetic recitation integrated into the uh, in the, the Dignity of Labor Ensemble. Now, you do have a pianist advertised mm-hmm. as part of the concert, don't you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have not only a pianist, we virtually have the pianist. We have the wonderful Biff Hannon that's going to be playing with his trio, uh, and he will be playing uh, a number of Thelonissima compositions, and then he will be joined by uh, guest saxophonist Kevin Goss, who's a very, very, very fine player who lived in Peterborough for many years, who lived in Oshawa and environments for many years, and I believe is now in Toronto, but he will be coming to join us. And then finally, um, I think the, the grand finale of the proceedings will be something of a jam session. I brought along a number of monk tunes um, in the different keys for the instruments, and just, just passed them out, and uh, um, come what may, I think it's going to be the way we'll finish. hearing Thelonious Monk solo piano playing Blue Monk in the background. So let's let it finish. According to Wikipedia, Thelonious Monk is the second most recorded jazz composer after Duke Ellington, which is particularly remarkable, as Ellington composed more than a thousand pieces where Monk wrote maybe 70, or according to Michael Morse, 80 or 90, but not that many considering how often his pieces are played. Let's hear more from Michael Morse about Thelonious Monk as a composer and the diversity of styles in which he wrote. As I alluded to earlier, there's really quite a range in, in the 
really 80 or 90 tunes that he wrote uh, between very simple blues. Uh, there's at least one marvelous, in effect, composition of his called Functional Blues that would, would be a little bit different or sometimes quite a bit different every time he played it. So in effect, it amounted to a, a improvised blues uh, and several of his other bl blues compositions were in that style. So his songs range from, from his own piano improvisations to the adaptations of standard songs that I mentioned to fairly simple and childlike songs like Little Rudy Tootie, which he wrote for his son T.S. Monk, and now known as T.S. Monk, uh, when he was a little, little fellow and liked uh, playing with trains. So there's an imitation of trains and train whistles in the song. Then there are... Um, the songs that are most popular with, with other musicians, uh, Straight No Chaser, The Blues, Blue Monk, The Blues, Around Midnight is a Ballad, sometimes Ruby My Dear, but then it starts to, to taper off a little bit. Uh, some of Monk's songs start to become um, uh, extremely difficult to, to execute. There's a song called Four and One that's basically a very short whirlwind. And it's just very, very difficult for people to execute. So even though, other than the fact that it's very difficult on your fingers, uh, it's not particularly challenging. People tend to leave that one alone. But then the songs of Monk that are him at his most radical and most challenging, it'll be because Monk's chord progressions are unusual and difficult to negotiate. If you're used to, to things that follow the basic model of the blues, I Got Rhythm, or, or pieces like Autumn Leaves, or other very simple progressions that, that, that follow any very familiar kind of logic, Monk can really throw you. I mean, some of his songs are very... They're, they're brilliantly logical, but it's a logic that's not the, the everyday vocabulary uh, that working jazz musicians are used to, to operating with. Um, and so those songs are respected and listened to and admired much more often than they're actually played. One of his tunes that I always found really haunting it's almost like the anti-jazz is Misterioso. Yeah, Misterioso is just a very original blues. It's it's a slow blues, uh, in a, in a very easy tempo, but uh, uh, it's Monk. Uh, Monk is, is, is typically creative. Uh, the the melody is, is, consists of fairly wide leaps. Da -dee, da -dee, da -dee, da -da. So Monk, to emphasize that in some of the recordings, has one instrument play the lower note and the other and another instrument play the higher note, so they kind of get a sort of a, a, a seesaw overlap of the notes. And um, in Typical Monk, it's a very simple idea, but, but performed with such ingeniousness that it uh, becomes a, a completely original kind of statement. And so Typical Monk ends up saying something that nobody else would say but Monk. Listening to a bit of Mysterioso right now. Thelonious Monk on piano, Johnny Griffin and Charlie Roos on tenor sax, Ahmed Abdul Malik on bass, and Roy Haynes drums. Let's hear some more.
Mysterioso Thelonious Monk Quartet. You're listening to Discovering Jazz. I'm Larry Sademan, and now we're going to talk about the most recorded jazz tune ever. And I'm talking about tunes written by jazz musicians rather than those adapted from Broadway or pop songs. It's Round Midnight, written by Thelonious Monk, one of the first tunes he ever wrote. He was about 19 when he wrote it. Our guest, Michael Morse, 
did a whole thesis paper on that tune. I asked him about it. When I was in graduate school studying ethnomusicology in the 1980s. Uh, instead of doing a dissertation, I did a major research paper, which ended up being the length of a dissertation. It was about 110 pages. But I got fascinated by, uh, and continue to be fascinated by, the way in which the same song can be so different, sung by different singers. I mean, if you hear a, a, a song sung by Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra and Mel Torme, it'll be marvelous in all three cases, but totally different. And the same thing is true of instrumentalists. If you hear, uh, to take take a, a, a much-played jazz song, Round Midnight by Monk, uh, when played by Monk himself, or played by Miles Davis, uh, or sung by Ella Fitzgerald, it's three very, very different experiences. So I got fascinated by that problem and picked the song Round Midnight as one to explore and just... Uh, assembled as many different versions of it as I could. I mean, I, th I think I finally transcribed about 25 different versions of the melody uh, and looked at, at uh, many dozens more. And I had the good fortune while I was working on it that uh, Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, who was alive at the time, a saxophone player who played with Cootie Williams and was on the original recording, uh, which was made in 1942. He, uh, he came to town, so I interviewed him about the song and how it got to be the way it is and about Cootie Williams' recording of it. And... Um, this is, I think, the, the uh, just personally speaking, the best thing that came out of that interview uh, was when I, when I finished asking questions, uh, Vincent said, well, okay, well, now you've, you've sampled all these versions of Round Midnight. What are you going to do with it? I said, well, I can write a, write a paper. He said, no, no, no. What are you going to do with it in terms of what you've learned? He said, well, I just continue to study the song. He said, no, no, no. You still haven't seen my point. It, all that matters when you study these things is what you do with them. I mean, when, when a song is presented to you and put in your hands, you have to think about what you have to say. I said, but I'm a bass player. I do what the piano player says. He said, even then, if the piano player does it a particular way, or a singer or a saxophone does it a particular way, you have to find your own voice when you play a song. That's what the song is all about. And I was really, really impressed with that. I think that's, uh, I think that's a very profound truth about music, about life, and about jazz, and very much about Thelonious Monk. When I had previously asked Michael about a good vocal version of Round Midnight, he suggested the version by Carmen McRae from the 1988 album called Carmen Sings Monk. I asked him why he selected that one. It's not a qualitative thing. I, if, if he said, if asked to choose between Carmen McRae, Sarah Vaughan, and Ella Fitzgerald as vocalists, I think I'd jump in the river. If there's not a choice, they're all absolutely wonderful. But Carmen McRae is perhaps a little bit closer to Monk Monk himself as a, as, uh, as a music, musical thinker. She thinks a little bit more the way Monk does, perhaps, than Sarah Vaughan or, uh, or Elvis Harrell. Now, Monk didn't write the lyrics, though. No. Uh, the, the lyrics were by a gentleman named Bernie Hannigan. So Bernie Hannigan's adaptation of, of uh, Round Midnight to Add Lyrics is a typical part, part of the general adaptation process. I mean, everybody... It's oh, Again, maybe back to what um, Eddie Vincent told me. It's up to everybody to, to find, when, when they find a song uh, that, that says something to them, then they, they have, to, have to do the internal process of finding, finding out what that something that it says to them is and then express it. And so uh, a vocalist like whoever the original ones that Bernie Hannigan wrote it for uh, and uh, all the vocalists we mentioned have to do exactly the same thing. Their, their, um, their task is, is not really any different than any other instrumentalist. It's, it's about, about self-discovery through the music that you choose to perform. Like at first glance, it sounds like it's a song of love lost. But you listen to it, it sounds like she's really only gone for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where it gets back to, uh, uh, I think, the, um, the, the really great interpreters of, of lyrics and jazz. Billie Holiday is a great example. She can take a... Uh, um, a very a virtually banal happy love song, and simply by the inflection that she puts on it, turn it into a, 
turning into a very powerful tragedy. And I think I think Rod Minna could be the same in, in the hands of someone who really. You could shade that song, lyric or no, I think, uh, any, any way you want it. If you really would like to to look at the darker side of, of its potentials, you can do that. Or if you want to make it uh, uh, something somewhat brighter or optimistic, that's 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 true, too. I mean, it does end on a major, so if you want to, want to stress that part of it, you can do that. It begins to tell at midnight, round midnight. I do pretty well till after sundown Supper time I'm feeling sad But it really get bad Round midnight Memories always start Round midnight Round midnight Haven't got the heart To stand those memories When my heart is still with you And oh midnight Knows it too When some quarrel we've had needs mending Does that mean that our love is ending? Darling, I need you lately. I find you're out of my arms and I'm out of my mind. Let our love take wing some midnight Round midnight Let the angels sing Of your returning Let our love Be safe and sound When old midnight Comes A pale and lonely moon lights the sky in the dark before the dawn. I sit here in my room, how I sigh for the day that's come and gone. Another lonely day passes by. And a new day's coming on at midnight. Tears I've shed today will pause waiting until tomorrow. Dreams of what could be come close to me timidly. There's a brand new day inside at that time around midnight. Life's a game of chance. And your 
one of the minor players Look for what you love The day to come Harbor some Let your spirit Stop the fight At the time Every day is gonna bring some sadness. Every day is gonna bring some gladness. So take what you can of the glad times. Don't measure your in nickels and dimes you better look back on today and you know when you've been unhappy fears don't chase away just my height at night have the day let your eyes I'll think no more about today For in a while This old day will be yesterday Alone at midnight here in my room I sit here in the gloom And let my dreams take flight round about midnight. Where do you see Monk as fitting in in the whole history of jazz? Um, that's typically a fascinating thing about Monk. In some ways, right, right in the middle. I mean, he's, uh, if you think of a strong exponent of a tradition as someone who both combines uh, a really solid knowledge of that tradition with their own vision, then, then, then Monk would be a central figure that, that he does. If you think of, of the greatness of a tradition as being someone who finds their completely own way of doing things, then again, Monk fits in. Um, it was a f familiar bit of... Uh, Monk's biography that that he was called the high priest of bebop in the 1940s and was considered one of the uh, the founders of the style of modern jazz that that we also associate with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell uh, and related people, Max Roach, the drummer, Kenny Clark. More wise words from Michael Morse, today's guest on our program on Thelonious Monk. This is Discovering Jazz. I'm Larry Sadman. And this program is broadcast through the studios of Trent Radio in Peterborough, Ontario. And if you are listening to this program on 92.7 on the radio dial or through the podcast and are in the Peterborough area, 
Don't miss that Thelonious Monk birthday concert that Michael is hosting and directing November 4th at Sadler House on George Street, just north of Park Hill, starting at 8 p.m. Right now, you're listening to a tune that I recorded at the Jazz Swing Camp at Sorrento, B.C. about four years ago. I was given permission to use it on a radio show. It's an impromptu group led by Vancouver drummer and choir leader Brian Tate, along with Tom Keenly side on jazz, Michael Kraber on piano, and Renee Wurst on bass. Here is In Walk Bud, written by Thelonious Monk.
let's finish with one more tune recommended by Michael Morse. Okay, so you're recommending one tune that we should definitely play in <laughs> its entirety. That, that would, uh, I mean, the, the choices are infinite. It could be Monk playing standards or blues or, or I mean, he, his his voice is so distinctive. But the one that's, that's closest to my heart uh, as an example of Monk's real brilliance and originality as a musical thinker is a tune called Work. He only played it once. Uh, he never played it as part of his working band's repertoire. But it's... Um, it's an example of how distinctive Monk's melodic concept is. Uh, his it uses the the distinctive left hand arrangement idea that I mentioned with just you, just me. This time applied to an original song of his, and it's uh, Monk's language at its at its most formidable and most powerful. It's marvelous, marvelous piece. <laughs> Thank you to Michael Morris for being such an eloquent guest on today's edition of Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan. Next week, I'm going to play some new records of different types of jazz that have been recommended to me by a pretty reliable source. So see you then. 